Hello, and welcome back to Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. On Current Account, I try to talk about what I see as the most important current issues in international finance and economics while providing my own U.S. political and policy angles on these different issues where relevant. Over the last couple of weeks since our last episode, there have been major developments on a variety of issues. So this week, I wanted to do a potpourri of subjects as opposed to one specific subject, highlight a few things where we've actually seen some culmination points, and also just kind of talk about we're at the halfway point almost of 2023. So kind of what do we see going forward? So let's start with the most recent topics we've covered, beginning with the U.S. debt ceiling. If you read a newspaper, you will realize the U.S. debt ceiling agreement has been reached between the Republicans and Democrats. They will be able to suspend the debt ceiling through a fiscal bill, which will do some cutting of spending and suspends the debt ceiling all the way until early 2025, so therefore after the presidential elections here in the United States. From a political standpoint, I mean, there's all sorts of different takes out there. And I know I'm not a political prognosticator, but I just think that basically the Republicans and Kevin McCarthy kind of achieved what they wanted to achieve. There are some on the conservative side that didn't feel like this went far enough. You had your negotiating leverage. You should have gone further with this. And while certainly there can be disagreements about some of the tactics that were used, including using the debt ceiling itself as a tactic, I would say that Kevin McCarthy came out of this much more positive than going into it. President Biden, I thought, also came out pretty well. Again, I had disagreements on some of the political tactics that were used, particularly early on, particularly the idea that there was going to be no negotiation over the debt ceiling, which I always thought was farcical. But in the end, I think he was able to push back on some of the Republican ideas and get something that he wanted. And probably most importantly, he got this problem off the table so that now he can kind of go back to doing his job in a normal way and go leading into the presidential elections in 2024, he won't have to worry about a debt default or what have you. So overall, I think it was actually probably interesting in Washington to see something that seemed like close to regular order, which was basically Republicans and Democrats compromising, fighting it out, arguing, et cetera, and then coming up with a bill that probably wasn't exactly what either side wanted, but gives them something positive to go on. The second big issue that we've covered recently was the Turkish elections. There were two rounds of elections, uh, May 14th and May 28th. And I had interviewed my colleague Urash Ulgo back in early May uh, on these elections. And in the end, what we got was the incumbent president, Recep Erdogan, won the elections. It was pretty close, but he won by 52% of the vote. Now, since he has won these elections, the lira, that's the Turkish currency, has dropped uh, pretty significantly against the dollar. Now, I think that that can be brought up for a few reasons. First, probably investor non-confidence. So what do I mean by that? Investors have been very nervous about the way Turkey has run its economy. It's been very, again, I think I said this last time, economists would call heterodox type of policies. And the lira, I think, has taken a beating because of that. So for Erdogan and the Turkish economy and the Turkish system going forward, can they change this narrative 
Or does he want to even change this narrative? And Urush, as I think you might remember, said if Erdogan wins, then he did not see there being any big economic policy changes. So this would suggest at least that maybe things could continue to deteriorate for Turkey's economy. Only time will tell. Obviously, President Erdogan is in a much more stable situation than he was just a few months ago because no longer does he have an election hanging over his head. And you've seen that from the reaction of capitals around the world who have had some disagreements and arguments with Erdogan, but instead what they did was reach out, congratulate him, and try to find ways that they can work more closely with them as Turkey still remains a very important country in the geopolitical system. The second part of this podcast, I wanted to talk about three things that I thought have really been big issues in early 2023 that we really simply did not predict in late 2022. And so I thought that I'd just go through them and kind of where they are and what this actually means for the international financial system. The first and by far the easiest one we did not predict was the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and a few other regional banks in the United States, as well as the acquisition of Credit Suisse. All that was in March through May. What we've seen over the last couple of months is the international standard setting and regulatory bodies, as well as policymakers trying to figure out what should we be doing about this? Do we need to make changes? Are there problems in the system? The Federal Reserve had four main takeaways from their preliminary autopsy of what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. The first was the one that I think everybody's been talking about, which is that the board of directors of Silicon Valley Bank and their management failed to manage their risks, such as you know basic liquidity and interest rate risk type of problems. The second and third were more introspective, which was that the Federal Reserve's supervisory system, in some respects, just didn't fully appreciate the extent of the vulnerabilities of Silicon Valley Bank. And if they did identify those vulnerabilities, they did not take sufficient steps to actually take action to do something about it. And the fourth point was whether or not the tailoring approach, so the tailoring approach was that Fed Reserve regulatory policy would only affect larger institutions, not regional institutions, may have been the wrong approach to take starting in 2018, 2019. There's been a little more pushback on whether or not that point is a valid one or not, but it is still something that the Federal Reserve has put forward that they would like to change. I think going forward on the international system, I think what we're looking at here at IIF is probably a number of areas. First, will there be changes on regulatory capital, particularly when it comes to interest rate risk, something that every bank has been having to deal with for such a long period of time, but did seem to be something that was missed by some of the standards, as well as obviously by some of the individual institutions. Secondly, is are the liquidity standards that have been put forward the right ones, or do we need to adjust them? Third, are there some of the accounting issues, such as should government debt be held to maturity, or should it be marked to market? So that's basically, should you value it in real time or not? And then finally is on what do we think about on deposit insurance? Again, Silicon Valley Bank ran into a problem of large uninsured depositors running. This is something that I think is going to be a big discussion domestically in the United States, but maybe not as much internationally, but it is worth still highlighting going forward. The second big issue that I think has really risen up in 2023, and we've had a podcast on this, which is the importance or 
at least the discussion around artificial intelligence. Now, artificial intelligence has been around for a long time. I think Steven Spielberg made a movie of it in the 1980s. So it's not exactly a new thing, but it has become much more prominent over the last few months. And interestingly, just this last week, a number of AI founders, scientists, academics, and so forth compared the rise of AI to the problems of the rise of nuclear weapons. Now, that seems like a fairly important topic. I think some would say, is that an overreaction? But it is interesting that it is people that actually helped invent this that actually are saying that. So it's probably worth taking into account. What we've seen over the last few weeks is official policymakers are clearly become aware of it. The G7 put out a statement on artificial intelligence in May which calls for a uniform standard, despite varying definitions of what is trustworthy artificial intelligence. They call for working groups to be established by the end of the year. And they're concerned about what they say is a threat to humanity. Okay, well, that's a pretty strong statement. And just this last week, the United States and the European Union, through their Trade and Technology Council, one of the key items they clearly highlighted was the issue of artificial intelligence and the importance of basically setting up different working groups to kind of try to figure out to monitor and measure risk among others. All of these issues are things that we at IIF have been also trying to follow. In fact, we have just put out a survey of our members, uh, so banks and other financial institutions, to try to figure out how they are using AI, how are they are looking at it, and a little bit on trying to think through what a regulatory approach that would make sense given some of the concerns and risks that have been highlighted by a number of people. The third area, and this one was all probably a bit more predictable, which was what would happen if China unlocked? China has been locked down largely for over three years in COVID. It's been hard to visit anybody in China. It's been hard for anybody in China to visit outside of China. And so what would that mean for the economy? So this is kind of where I skip to the third part of this podcast, which is kind of to discuss some of our recent travels. I personally was in China for the first time since 2019. And just a few quick takeaways. The first is what's happening in the Chinese economy is still a bit a mixed view. They had a pretty strong first quarter, which I chalked up to just basically unlocking the economy. But things have already started to fall off a little bit starting in the second quarter. That seemed to be the sentiment when you talk to a number of Chinese financial players, which is that they are also uncertain. They're not sure how much scarring has been done to their economy through such a large lockdown. There are drags on the economy, but there are also some positive things. So I think we'll have to see on that. The second impression I had from China was that there was just kind of a feeling of, we'd like to have conversations. We'd like to be able to see people face to face. They've been locked down. They would like to see people come into China. They'd like to go out of China. And the third impression, and not surprisingly, is, of course, seeing me, an American, is having a conversation about the U.S. and China relationship, which has been very tense for years, even before COVID, and has seemed to get worse during that time frame. And we see that still in the United States as just this last week. There was defense ministers in China did not want to meet with our minister of defense, by the way, somewhat probably understandable, given that we have put sanctions on that minister in the past in the United States. So the tension I know that I think President Biden would like to see end, or at least 
put a floor on it, it still has not actually reached that end. We'll see going forward. The other parts from our travels were being in Japan, where you're seeing actually the equity markets have been shooting up and, and the yen has been falling. And part of that, I think, is related to a new central bank governor for the first time in 10 years, who appears to at least initially be taking a stance that is very close to the former central bank governor, which is uh, would be considered probably in the central bank parlance is sort of dovish. And so that is continuing. And at some point, I think in the near future, we probably will have a conversation about the issue of yield curve control in Japan. I think it's a little bit, given how many topics I'm covering today, a little bit complicated to go into detail. The third area is that the IIF had a very successful European summit in Brussels on May 23rd. There were a number of takeaways. I think the probably some of the key things were that the European economy has done better than a lot of people expected. Inflation, actually, we've just seen is starting to come down a little bit, but it does not appear that that is going to change the mind of the European Central Bank, which I think still wants to kind of continue to push up interest rates in order to get inflation fully under control, particularly if the European economy has done better than had originally been anticipated. Part of that is, of course, energy prices have not risen as much as people had expected, and the European banking system has proved to be more resilient than others had expected it to be. So there's more to be told on Europe, but I think that that covers some of the broad themes that were being portrayed. Now it's time for my three, two, one. So my three main takeaways, the two things I'm looking forward to and my one sports spec. All right, so there's three main takeaways on a podcast, which is all about takeaways. So that's gonna be a little hard, but I think if I had to give three, I would say the three are the three things I think were the most important things that have happened in 2023 that we didn't really totally anticipate at the end of 2022. So those three takeaways are with this. First, there is still financial risk in the system. We did know that. But some of it is coming from the banks, but it appears to be isolated somewhat in the United States to regional banks. But it does mean that there's going to be a relook on, by the international system at a number of regulatory and supervisory steps that could be taken. Second is the importance of artificial intelligence. And we, I mean, anybody who reads a newspaper, listens to a podcast, or just walks down the street can't probably have a conversation uh, without thinking about artificial intelligence. And some of it is about fear and concerns, and some of it is about great opportunities. And so we have a long way to go on this, but clearly policymakers and regulators are trying to figure this out in real time. And the third is, uh, is China. What exactly is going to happen with China's economy? Um, is it going to bounce back to what we saw in 2019? Or is China in some sort of a decline given the lockdowns over the last few years? And is the US and China relationship going to continue to deteriorate or will there be a more of a positive upswing? So the two things I'm looking forward to. The first is the G20 this year is actually being held in India. And they'll do a finance ministers and central bank governors meeting in July in a leaders meeting a little bit later in the year. I think I'm looking forward to a couple parts of that. First is how do they adopt some of this G7 agenda 
when you have China and, and Brazil and India in the room and Russia. Second is whether or not this might be an opportunity for President Biden and President Xi to get together and again, try to establish more of a floor on the relationship. The second thing is a little more near term and a little more maybe parochial for the IIF, which is the BIS, the Bank for International Settlement, and some of their groups will be coming out with sort of their recommendations going forward on the areas of study following the problems in the banking system from Silicon Valley Bank. And so that will be an interesting thing to see where they are looking at concerns about the regulatory supervisory system and as well, risks that are in the financial system. Now, my one sports fact this week is about uh, something I'm not sure I've ever talked about, which is the Premier League in soccer, so in England. But it's not really that. It's really about something that is called the continental-wide treble. Okay, I think that would be triple if it was in the United States parlance, but it is basically, it is where you win three trophies. You win your league title, you win what are the national cup for your country, and then you win the Champions League Cup or the European-wide cup among different countries. And the reason I mention that is because Manchester City from England has the ability to do that. They have won the Premier League, beating out Arsenal. This weekend, they are playing their cross-city rivals, Manchester United, in the FA Cup, which is England's National Cup Championship. And then next Saturday, they will be playing Inter Milan in the Champions League finals. If they win the, against Manchester United and against Inter Milan, they will have won the continental-wide treble. Only four teams in history have ever done this. Barcelona, Bayern Munich, Inter Milan, and Manchester United. Now, it is kind of interesting that their Manchester United is the only English team to do it. They did it in 1999. And they can stop Manchester City in the FA Cup. Inter Milan did this in 2010, and they can stop Manchester City in the Champions League. And then finally, interestingly, the coach of Manchester City, Pep Guardiola, has actually won the treble when he was the coach of Barcelona. By the way, he also, I guess to link it to the last team, was also the coach of Bayern Munich, though he never won the treble when he was at Bayern Munich. Anyway, I thought that was an interesting, uh, some little facts about the Premier League and good luck to whichever team you were rude for uh, during the FA Cup and the Champions League Cup finals. So that's going to wrap up this episode of Current Account. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show as we constantly look to improve and enhance the experience for you, the listener. We can be reached at podcast at IIF.com. All our episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening and goodbye.